Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. We are continuing to discuss our rebuttals to Christian nonviolence. Today's episode, we are going to look at the supposed necessity of violence. I debated on whether or not I wanted to do this episode because I think it's going to be pretty short. And also, it's going to kind of run into the the previous episode, as well as one or two of the upcoming episodes. Uh, nevertheless, I think that that this episode is going to be important to pull out and isolate, uh, just to kind of to give it its own its own space to be able to look at, because I think that it is such a a strong argument, and it's it's unique enough that um, it warrants its own look. So. Let's dive in and and see what this rebuttal is. Uh, one way to maybe look at the rebuttal is to watch the movie Lord of War. And again, I understand that I'm a I'm a adhere to Christian nonviolence, and um, I probably shouldn't like all these violent movies, but I really like dark movies. And Lord of War is is a fantastic movie um, that I wouldn't necessarily re- recommend to anybody. But I love it. It's just it's cynical about the the way that evil is in the world, and about the the power that we really have against it. And I don't know why I like those kinds of movies. It, it's really like pessimistic and dark. Um, I'm I'm just weird. I don't know. But anyway, Lord of War. You've got Nicolas Cage who's playing this guy who ends up getting into arms dealing, and in the course of his arms dealing, he meets up with lots of really bad people and dictators and, and other sorts of things. And on one of these trips, he takes his brother with him. Now, his brother has has gotten a pretty strong conscience, and he, he's messed up from all of this, this arms dealing because he recognizes the gravity of what he's doing. Cage, on the other hand, uh, he is rationalizing at every turn, and he's like, well, if they're going to just get the guns from somebody else, you know, they might as well get them from me. I can make money off of it. And, I mean, they're going to do what they're do. Reg- they're going to do what they're going to do regardless. Um, so he takes his, his brother on this trip. And his brother's pretty messed up in the head from, from all of the stuff that they've done and, and the consequences of, of what their guns have on people's lives. As they're sitting there doing this one deal, um, they they recognize that uh, they're doing a deal with these warlords, and down below in the valley, there's this tent city of uh, some minority group, and they see the army trucks pulling in, and Cage's brother knows what's going to happen. Basically, these guys are ordering all of these weapons, and as soon as they've made the deal, they're going to use the weapons that they're selling to go ahead and slaughter the, the the minority group in the tent city, and the brother just just can't do it, and um, ends up uh, doing something valiant and uh, getting killed, and the atrocity the atrocity happens anyway, uh, at the expense of the brother's life as well. Uh, some people will will kind of point to this sort of uh, this sort of event, they'll say, um, let's say, kind of like this tent city here, you've got 
you see these uh, warlords and these ISIS trucks, this convoy, rolling in. And they're going towards this tent city, and they're about to slaughter everybody. You know it. Now, instead of being two guys, Cage and his brother, uh, you've got you've got a larger band of people, and you're you're pretty sure that you can take uh, this ISIS group. Why wouldn't you go and intervene by killing ISIS and stopping the massacre that's about to occur? Why wouldn't you do that? Because to just let them go in and slaughter everybody seems not not just foolish, but it seems immoral to allow such evil to prevail. And before I get into into the discussion on this particular subject, I do want to remind you that we did talk in episode 7, I believe, when we discussed St. Cyril, uh, we did talk about how you do have to remember that if you levy such a claim against the nonviolent for refusing to intervene, uh, you have to levy the exact same claim against God, because for every atrocity that occurs that a nonviolent individual allows, God allows the same atrocity plus billions of others throughout history and in the future. Every atrocity that occurs is an atrocity in which God could have intervened in his omnipotence and omniscience, but refused to. So just keep that in mind as well. But let's get into the discussion at hand. So the first point that I would say to a refusal to intervene violently uh, in, in a situation that is so clearly evil, ISIS, evil, the things that they do to people, evil, okay, that's, that's clear. Um, so why, why is intervening a problem or lack of intervention not a problem? And first thing I would say, which isn't going to be comforting at all, but is important, is that morality cannot be determined by the ends. If violence is wrong, it doesn't become right based on any perceived outcome, perceived or actual, and that's important. So when I perform an action, if I were going to go and intervene with ISIS, with this ISIS convoy, the perceived outcome I'm shooting for is to defeat them and save innocent lives. I am not guaranteed that that is going to be the outcome. So any action I embark on is going to be an action based on perceived ends, not necessarily actual ends. Second, I would point back to the empirical evidence that nonviolence is a better course. Um, because nonviolence proves to be more effective um, in the long run. And so if you're saying, I know the right thing to do is nonviolence, but I need to do this thing, uh, I need to do violence to accomplish this outcome that I perceive will occur, what you don't understand is that y if you say violence is wrong and then you, you use a perceived end to justify that, you're, you're saying that your perceived end is more important than God's objective standard. Um, but... It's encouraging to know that nonviolence is, in fact, often more effective if you can just hold out. And so even this metric of, of being effective in accomplishing a perceived end uh, is not necessarily true. It's not usually true. Third, and, and I think most importantly, 
Um, I think there's this myth that violence res resolves things. And, um, I mean, yes, empirically we can see that. But I, I think this idea of, of resolving things long-term can be shown a bit more clearly. And Gandhi has a, a good quote I'll introduce this section with, where he says, I object to violence because when it appears to do good, the good is only temporary, the evil it does is permanent. Now you might be thinking, that's really stupid, because if I stop this ISIS convoy right now, I know that I'm going to stop an evil act and the end of saving the innocent and judging the guilty is going to be done. Well, what is there that's bad about that? And to show this, I would, and to kind of help explain point number two, like why is nonviolence in the end usually more effective than violence? I want to point you to a movie called The Kingdom. Again, another violent movie, another movie that, that I like. Um, in The Kingdom, there is this, this terrorist act. And what ends up happening is this group of people goes to try to capture these terrorists. And in the end, they find them and kill them. Justice served, right? Well, the movie, the, the last couple minutes of the movie are, are just the, the, best, the best part of the movie. Because the movie doesn't end. You, know, you think you'd have this closure of the guilty being punished and the innocent avenged. And that's it, right? Happy ending. But the last two minutes are just, are just beautiful in that it shows the cyclical nature of what violence does. So I'll put a link to the clip below, but what ends up happening in the last two minutes is uh, you've got one of the actors who, uh, at the beginning of the movie, when this lady found out that I think it was her husband had died in this terrorist act, this guy goes up and whispers something in her ear. And at the end of the movie, they, they ask this guy, so what did you whisper in, in, in her ear? And he said, I told her we're going to kill them all. Right, well, right, fine. He's justified because those people committed a terrorist act, killed a bunch of people. They deserve to die, right? They should all be killed. So, um, but what's beautiful is that then the scene pans to a boy in whatever country they were in. I don't know if it was Iraq or somewhere over in the Middle East. And the boy... His grandpa or dad had just gotten killed by this American uh, American Special Forces team. And he's talking to one of his relatives, and he says, uh, we'll kill them all. And that's such a beautiful scene, because it shows the cyclical nature of violence. So maybe those people who committed a ter terrorist act did deserve to die. Maybe that's true. Let me, let me give you that. But what's, what ends up happening is that in our avenging, when we go over and we kill them in what we think is, is justice, we are just perpetuating this violence in the hearts of the relatives of those people that we killed. Their cause is now justified. Their hatred for us is justified. And because we couldn't forego vengeance, because 
we thought it was in our hands to to make justice. And so what, what you see is, going back to the, the example of the ISIS convoy, we go and we slaughter the ISIS convoy who's on their way to slaughter innocent people. We are more justified than them because they are about to do something that is atrociously violent to people who don't deserve it. That's unjust. They're, they're going to shed innocent blood. We are shedding guilty blood. But what we do in this is we, we have this temporary outcome that we perceive as good, but what we end up doing is we end up perpetuating hatred and violence uh, in, in the hearts of the families of those ISIS members and people who are looking on and wanting to join ISIS. And um, we just we create more violence than we do good. We see this in, in a lot of examples. We can take a look at World War One, and what came out of, of that um, when the Middle East was born and the relationships between various countries. Um, we can see it with, with all the proxy wars that we do uh, where, I mean, we gave weapons to Afghanistan when they were fighting Russia, but now Russia's fighting, uh, but, but then Afghanistan ended up fighting us. You just see this all over the place where violence is perpetuated because we build up this animosity in our violent actions towards others. We justify, in their minds, we justify their causes, and we either water or plant seeds of hatred. That's what violence does. The Christian way, however, is to be the first to be willing to lay down our lives, to be willing to forego vengeance, and to be willing to love even our enemies. And we might not see any effect. I mean, lots of Christians were martyred. Um, lots of people who tried to help in abolition, in uh, saving Jewish lives, in, in, uh, in fighting back in the civil rights movement nonviolently, lots of those people lost life or limb. So we're not saying that this is necessarily going to be the most effective, but that isn't really what it's about. It's about doing the right thing. But even beyond doing the right thing, we do find that it actually may be more effective in some ways. It just takes patient, persistence, perseverance to be willing to lay down our lives daily, to forego vengeance, and to refuse to do violence to others. It's our, our willingness to break the cycle as Christians that is what we're called to do. And for as, for as valuable and, and effective as we might think violence is, generally that effectiveness is very momentary and immediate, and it's not, uh, it doesn't have the breadth uh, or the scope that it should. It doesn't truly restore it just puts a band-aid on on something. So, recommend watching that uh, the clip from the kingdom and thinking a little bit more about the cyclical nature of violence. But for now, that's all. So peace, because I'm a pacifist. When I say it, I mean.